Well, I grew up in a family where we read regularly. My parents read books to us um, when we were young. They read picture books, and when we got older, we graduated to chapter books. And so we read an awful lot of books when I was growing up. We repeated that with our kids, although not nearly as many books did we make it through in this modern era as my parents did. But one of my favorite books when I was young was a book called Andy and the Lion. Um, I can't find my copy. I had to buy another one on Amazon. But I would like to, if you give me permission, read the story to you this evening. So it begins, it was a bright day with just enough wind to float a flag. Andy started down to the library to get a book about lions. He took the book home and he read and read. Andy read all through supper and he read all evening. And just before bedtime, his grandfather told him some tall tales about hunting lions in Africa. And every story ended with, and then I gave him both barrels. Andy dreamed all night long that he was in Africa hunting lions when at last morning came. Andy woke up, the sun was looking out in at the window, and Prince was tugging at the bedclothes. The lions had left, but Andy kept thinking about them. Andy thought about lions on the back porch as his father, and so that his father had to remind him to wash behind his ears. Andy was still thinking about lions after breakfast when his mother gave his hair a final brush. And Andy started off to school. Andy walked along swinging his books and whistling a tune. As he came to the turn in the road, he noticed something sticking out from behind the big rock just at the bend. It looked very odd. So Andy and Prince crept up cautiously to investigate. It moved. It was a lion. At this moment, Andy thought he'd better be going. And the lion thought so too. And they ran and ran around the rock. Whichever way that Andy ran, there was the lion. Whichever way the lion ran, there was Andy. At last, they both stopped for breath. The lion held out his paw to show Andy what was the matter. It was a big thorn stuck in his paw. But Andy had an idea. He told the lion to be patient, and he'd have that thorn out in no time. Fortunately, Andy always carried his pliers in the back pocket of his overalls. He took them out and got a tight grip and Andy braced one foot against the lion's paw and pulled with all his might until the thorn came out. The grateful lion licked Andy's face to show how pleased he was. But it was time to part, so they waved goodbye and Andy went to school and the lion went about the business of being a lion. In the spring, the circus came to town. Of course, Andy went. He wanted to see the famous lion act. And right in the middle of the act, the biggest lion jumped out of the high steel cage and with a terrible roar, dashed straight toward the people. They ran for their lives, and in the scramble, Andy found himself right in the lion's path. He thought his last moment had come. But then, who should it be but Andy's own lion? They recognized each other and danced for joy. When the crowd came back ready to fight the lion and capture him, Andy stood in front of the lion and shouted to the angry people, do not hurt this lion, he's a friend of mine. Then the next day, Andy led the lion and all the people in a grand parade down Main Street to the city hall, and there the mayor presented Andy with a medal for bravery, and the lion was very much pleased. And the next day, Andy took the book back to the library. 
Now, some of you may recognize the story. It's Androcles and the Lion told in a version accessible for children, and I loved this story when I was a kid. Um, there's another story that I want to read. It's a Bible story, and it's a story that involves another young person, in this case, a young girl. Uh, there are several characters in the story, and I, I do want you, though, to pay attention especially to this young, this young girl. We don't know her name, but as we read, I want you to pay attention to how kind and brave and courageous she is. And the story's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, if you have a pew Bible, you can turn to page 519, although the words will also be on the screen. Now, the story begins this way. It says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. In the letter that he took to the king of Israel, it read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him and said, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he went off, he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now, I mentioned earlier there are several characters in this story, and I wanted you to focus on the young girl as I read the story. But I want to talk for a moment about this general. His name was Naaman. He was in charge of a large army, the army of Aram. It said he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. So that means that the king trusted him, had great faith in his abilities, but he was also very respected by the people in the country. Now, what we get an impression of here is that he's a very proud man. He'd been very successful and thought that all his success had come because of his great skill. But the narrator lets us, sort of peels back the curtain and says, you know what? He was successful because God granted him success. He didn't realize that and it went to his head and so he'd grown arrogant. But he did have a problem. It says he had leprosy. 
Now, the term, the word that uh, is translated here as leprosy covered really a wide variety of skin ailments. We don't know that this is Hansen's disease, the most severe form of, uh, of possible diseases. It may have been something much less serious. But nonetheless, it was annoying and probably caused some social embarrassment. Well, at this point, it's that we're introduced to this young girl. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, names are important. None of us like to be called, hey, you. We like someone to use our name. Uh, usually, though, we remember the names of important people and we forget the names of people that are less important. And this girl is so socially insignificant that the narrator doesn't even bother to tell us her name. So we don't know her name, but we do know a few facts about her life. We know that she was a slave, and this was at a time when one of the tactics of war would be to capture uh, a few of the people that you conquered and take them back and use them as slave labor. And in this case, she was probably living happily with her family when one day some band of uh, battle-hardened soldiers came up. Maybe she was playing with her friends or helping her mom in the kitchen, and they grabbed her, and they took her. And she was given to Naaman, or his, to his family, to serve his wife. And the work was hard. She probably was assigned the most difficult and disagreeable household tasks, and she worked probably from dawn until dusk. Now, we're given the impression that this was a good household, that Naaman, despite his high position, thought that he should treat others with respect and kindness. But let me just be clear, even if the conditions were comparatively good, she was still a slave. Slavery was never good, even if you're well-fed. In her case, she was far from her family. She had little control over her life. She had no rights. It was unrealistic to dream of freedom, to dream of a husband and a family of her own. And if either Naaman or his wife were to die, she likely would have been sold to a different family. And who knows, her fate would have been worse. Now, what we see, though, is that she is someone who, rather than feel sorry for herself or become bitter, she appeared to care for and love the family that she was serving. She's an example here of great kindness, and she sees this disease, this skin ailment that Naaman's struggling with, and she remembered that there was a man in Israel who had remarkable powers of healing. And so she did something risky. She went to the general's wife, and she said, I think I know someone who can help you. If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And I think it must have taken great courage for her to do this. Why would they trust her? How did she know? But she takes the risk anyway. And Naaman listens and decides to give her suggestion a try. It's surprising that this very important man would trust someone so insignificant. And it may be that he was so desperate he would try anything. It may also simply be that this little girl had earned their trust by the way she served them, by the kind of life she lived, um, living out faithfully uh, her life with God among them, and they trusted her. Whatever the reason, Naaman takes the first step, and he goes to the king of Aram and asks for permission to travel to Israel. Remember, he's traveling really to an enemy. Um, he goes there to seek this cure, and the king immediately grants his request, and he takes a significant amount of silver and gold, about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. That would be, uh, make him about a millionaire three times over. So this is a significant amount of money. But instead of going to the prophet, as the little girl suggested, what he does is he goes to see the king of Israel, probably because he believed, well, the prophet can't heal. I mean, the king's the most powerful person in the country. I should go there first. When the king of Israel read the letter that Naaman brought from the king of Aram, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Now, what he's thinking here is that the king of Aram has 
decided to uh, do something to allow for a pretext of war. In other words, he's going to send this general, and if the king can't cure him, then he's going to attack. So he's very threatened by this. But when Elisha hears how the king responded, he sent a message to the king and said, have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman goes to see Elisha. But instead of greeting him personally, Elisha, at this point, sends a servant with the instructions that he washed seven times in the Jordan River. And now it's Naaman's turn to get angry. Why? Well, first of all, he's angry because Elisha didn't come to see him. Uh, this is a man who was not used to being treated with anything less than deference. He expected special treatment. This is, by the way, a common problem for those who are powerful and important. They expect to be treated differently. So when Elisha treated him just like anyone else, he was angry. A number of years ago, when our kids were little, uh, we went on a spring break trip down to Florida. Kathy's mom spends the winters down there. And um, for some reason, I can't remember why, I flew back with the girls a day or two before Kathy did. And um, we ended up on a flight that I think flew from Fort Myers to Cleveland and Cleveland to Minneapolis. I, I don't remember exactly. But um, I had status on Northwest Airlines at the time, and so I got bumped up to first class. But the girls didn't, so you know, really can't do that. But what I did is I put... Amy on the first leg of the flight in first class, and then on the second leg of the flight, I put, you know, probably six, seven-year-old Hannah up in first class. And we got back that night, and I was putting the girls to bed, and we were doing, uh, reading the stories and, and our nighttime prayers, and Hannah prayed, thank you, God, that I got to sit in first class and be pampered. And, uh, you know, it's really easy to get used to being pampered, isn't it? And that's the way Naaman had lived, and so he was probably a little annoyed that Elisha didn't come out and show him a lot of honor. But the second reason that Naaman was angry is that he had preconceived notions of how God would work. He expected Elisha to greet him personally, to wave his hands, to offer a magical prayer and heal him. He couldn't get around his head around the idea that going and taking a bath in a dirty river was going to do something for him. I've seen the Jordan River, maybe some of you have, and it is a dirty, ugly, messy river. It's not a pretty river. And so, you know, he, he didn't really think that was going to work. It, it makes me think that how often we're like Naaman. We have a problem. We have something we bring to God. We pray about it. We already have a preconceived notion of how God's going to answer our prayer. And then he does something totally unexpected, totally different, totally outside of the timing that we're thinking about. Um, and we're a little bit like Naaman. We need to be humbled and remember that God sometimes has ways that are not our ways. But Naaman's stubborn. He's not going to do something that he considers silly, that he believes is unlikely to work. And it's at this point that another unnamed character, actually characters, it uses the plural when it describes the servants, uh, they steps up. And this servant who's been with him for a long time, they say, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? And Naaman says, okay, you're right. This isn't that hard to do. So he did what Elisha asked. He went down to the Jordan River. He dipped himself seven times in the river. And it says his flesh was restored. His skin was like that of a young boy. And it's most likely at that point that he thought back to the little girl who was serving his wife and with gratitude. By the way, you see here in this text that his transformation was more than just physical because he's humbled before God. And he returns to Elisha and says, sir, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So this is not only a physical transformation, it's a spiritual transformation as well. Now, I want to go back now to the beginning of the story, to this little girl that we introduced in this story. And I want you to imagine that you are her, 
that you've been living with your family and suddenly you're ripped out from everyone that you know and love and cares for you. And you're taken to this strange place, a strange language, maybe strange religion, all sorts of things. And think about how you might feel. Would you think that perhaps God let you down? Would you be asking a question like, why me? My guess is she did. But she didn't seem to dwell there, at least not only there. Knowing these things, didn't, knowing all of that didn't change her circumstances, but instead of focusing on how bad she had it, she had faith, the confidence that God keeps his promises, that he's in control, and that he can be trusted. And she asks some other important questions. She seems to ask questions like, what purpose might God have in this for me? How might God want to change me? And then she asks one more important question. And her final question is, how might God use me to care for others? And that's why she reached out to her master with kindness and love. Now, we should be clear. She didn't do anything particularly heroic. She didn't heal him. That was God's work through the prophet Elisha. Um, But the one thing she did, she did, she could do, she did, and that is to show love and compassion to those closest to her. Even someone who was part of her nation's enemies, someone who had made her a slave. Mother Teresa once said that we cannot all do great things, but we can all do little things with great love. It took this great love for this girl to take the risk to suggest to her master that he go and see the prophet. And even if all that most of us can do are little things, we can do the little things that can make a big difference. They may not always be noticed, but they will often add up. And as Mother Teresa says, we can do small things with great love, and they can make a difference. I think that this little slave girl would be very surprised to hear that we're talking about her today. Her name has long ago faded into obscurity, um, but what she did survived. Good things done for God are like this. They bless others who in turn bless others, and it just continues on and on. So even if we cannot do great things, we can all do the little things that God has given us to do with great love. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we may even grow frustrated by living our little lives in the background while others get all the press. Sometimes we long to do great things for you to make a difference. Father, humble us like you did, Naaman. And like this little servant girl, may we realize that there is much we can still do. Help us to see the little acts of kindness you put before us each day, and may we do them. May we too be faithful in even the little things of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.